Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me another Laura, Laura O'Mea, who is Director of the Europe-Asia Department at Conciliation Resources. She has particular expertise in peacebuilding management and gender and has worked in countries all over the world with a view to resolving conflict. Welcome, other Laura. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. It's wonderful to have you here, and I want to dive straight in and ask you what led to your current role at Conciliation Resources? Well, so my background is a bit varied. So academically, I focused on popular politics and governance. So was trying to understand what made civil society movements successful. And then from that started to look at the role and impact of international influences on civil society which led me to looking at the role of international funding. And so I moved from academic um, side from that into working briefly with the UK Department for International Development and then in a development consultancy where I spent a fair bit of time supporting projects in Kenya, Nigeria, Malawi and South Sudan. And they're all quite different projects, but my work focused on adaptive programming, embedding learning through long-term projects. And whilst the focus of these projects was all slightly different, there's a very strong element around violence reduction in them. Mm-hmm. And so from there, I then joined Conciliation Resources, where initially I directed a Smart Peace program, which was an adaptive peace building program that used innovative collaborations to create lessons on how to best support peace building in Nigeria, CAR and Myanmar. And perhaps I should say for those who might not know that Conciliation Resources is an international peace building organisation. So we work with partners around the world to bring people together to find creative and sustainable paths to peace. And so from that, I'm now Europasia Department Director. I oversee our work in our South Asia programme, our South Caucasus programme, and also some of our thematic cross-regional work on women, peace and security and also climate change. So I work with some of our incredible expert programme teams, helping them set up new projects, ensuring we're learning from our current peace building work and working with them to make sure they've got the support and resources they need in their work as well. Mm-hmm. And so this might be a silly question, but you've mentioned adaptive programming, and adaptive peace building. What actually is that? It's not a silly question at all. So Often with projects, and particularly when there is funding for projects, and it stems from kind of projects in the kind of humanitarian space much more, there's often really perceived to be a kind of very linear approach that you put money in, you do some activities, you achieve a result, and that helps you get to where you're you're wanting to go. And with peace building, and also in other wide sectors like governance support as well, it's much more complex. There's numerous factors in, in the outside world. And So what you'll find is you'll do some activities and actually maybe something's changed in the context or something happened that you didn't necessarily expect. And so there's not a kind of linear path that takes you from A to B to C. You're going from A to B to D back to C and having to... Throw a Z in there somewhere. Yeah, (laughs) having to kind of all go around. With adaptive programming, it's trying to recognise that. And so in that peace building approach, we know that it's not so straightforward that we can't just expect that if we do this, this will happen and this will lead to this. It's around saying, actually, we need to look at this in the long term. Mm -hmm. We need to be not just reporting against something that we thought would happen when we started this, but actually looking at what has happened 
and recording some of the things that were unintended and some of the external impacts as well as just things we didn't expect our work to necessarily do and then go back and understand that to help us get to where we want to get to. So it's really about just embedding the complexity into our work, but having tools and processes and ways to try and do that. I mean, when you say it like that, it sounds really obvious, right? Because it's not like to get from war to peace, just add water. (laughs) It's like, oh, no, there's actually a lot of complex dynamics at play here that we need to adapt to. So thank you. That makes a lot more sense to me now. And if I can ask, what actually drew you to this kind of work in the first place? I think for me, it's two things. There's one is I am the kind of person that is very interested around the kind of how and the why and getting into something and the complexity there. And so for me, you know, one of the things I really enjoy in my role at the moment and being able to work with such different teams is being able to kind of work with them and dive into the what what has happened here or what has happened as a result of our work and what might we need to do and I enjoy that complexity but beyond it being just a um a kind of intellectual the work that we do in in peace building with civil society is I there is something around working with individuals communities activists who are often those that are most affected by the conflicts who are showing incredible strength in what they do And it's incredibly inspiring to work with the partners we work with. They're leading the work. And for me, that's a really exciting role to be able to see how we can support that. And that's one of the things I guess in looking at the kind of work I do and and my colleagues do is I think often what drives us is how can we continue to do that, continue to support them in in very challenging times. Mm. Now, it's great, I think, to be able to see that impact of the work you do on a daily basis, which can be quite rare in NGO and nonprofit work, right? Is that you do all these fabulous stuff and then you don't really see how it affects people's lives on the ground, but it sounds like you actually get to do that. Well, I think still on a day-to-day basis, it's incredibly hard, partly because everyone's also so busy most of the time and you're often just stuck in the immediate of what do I need to get through today, this week, this month? And a lot of my colleagues as well will talk about the stresses when you've got your day-to-day reporting and all these different demands on you. I found that we in conciliation resources we use an approach called outcome harvesting which again leads into that very linked to that adaptive peace building approach I talked about earlier and it's for us as a way of how do we look at what's happened as a result of our work and how does that fit in with the aims that we are trying to get to. In each piece of work we'll try and do annually a kind of in-depth session where we dive into that with our partners and those are some of the times where you can really take a step back and saying, oh, we, we we are doing something that is helping to get to where we want to get to. And we try and do this in different ways along the year as well. It's quite easy to kind of forget about some of that or in, in the day to day for it to kind of slip past you. And I think my way of trying to stay optimistic about our work or enthused about it and it is trying to make sure we all remember that and have the space to think about it and, and do that work because often we are working in contexts which aren't getting better on a regular basis and in fact you know maybe the past years or so have got worse in some regards and trying to keep that space for our partners going is often very challenging. And so do I understand correctly that conciliation resources mostly works with civil society and level two and three actors? We work with um uh, in a mixture so our work works at all levels we can find it helpful not to really think of it as distinct levels so we have worked to support peace agreements to support mediators working at 
track one level. But I think what's really important in that work is um, identifying the linkages as well between the different spaces, that it's not just kind of national and international processes that happen in one place and then civil society work is entirely separate. At CR, a lot of our work is around inclusive peace processes and inclusion in its wider sense. So it's not just about gender, it's which groups are involved, whose voices are being heard more widely. Which is obviously so important. I mean, I remember reading Nicholas Kristof's Half the Sky and that particular factoid has always stuck in my head that during World War I in the US, more women died in childbirth and related issues than men died in combat. And yet we hear about one of these audiences and not the other. And I think sort of that factor and the impacts on wider civil society is something we don't necessarily think about so much beyond the headlines of refugees fleeing country ABC as part of actually the problem of conflict. Right. So it's fantastic to see how you support these civil society initiatives as well. So that doesn't get lost. And I think it's that's a really interesting fact. And I think it's also really important um, that it's, as you said, we're not just thinking about, you know, images of refugees or seeing groups as helpless groups. We can talk about women in their role in armed groups. It's much more complex than the media is often able to portray and, and does portray. And media is often trying to, you know, simplify something for a wider diverse audience but I think our job often is to make sure we recognize the complexity that the work that is happening whether that's to support actual negotiations or processes or civil society and that recognizes that complexity as well. Mm. And so because we're on the topic of inclusion and also supporting peace processes I've seen that you're actually involved in building up women mediators so why is that? And is there a particular role for women mediators in conflict? So at the moment, I see our work as part of the UN's rapid response window, which is a mechanism to address funding gaps for women's participation in peace processes. And over the last few years at Conciliation Resources, we've been really privileged to work with the women mediators across the Commonwealth Network, which is a network of just under 50 expert mediators from across the Commonwealth, so globally. You're in the name. <laughs> it's, a, it's a, yeah, fairly descriptive name. But we, in that work and the reason for CR doing some of that work and is we, we know statistically that if peace processes are more inclusive, they're more likely to be sustainable. We are talking years after UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which nice gendered impact of conflict and the need to ensure inclusion in resolving conflict. But we're still here in the very end of 2022 and not always recognizing women's role in peace building it's under recognized it's under supported and I think when we we're looking at this and you know say why what's the role for women mediators is the first thing I would say and I often say when talking about women's role in peace building is women are peace builders already women are leading peace building processes what is often ignored is um because so much of the talk around mediation focuses on track one mediations and these high profile international and national mediations, that we forget the work that's happening at community, society, local level. And women are leading much of that work. They're not supported, then their protection needs aren't met. The civil society space is shrinking in a number of places, and there's increased pressure on, on women for doing that. And also it's not being linked up to some of these wider processes at kind of national or regional level when there's actually would be an immense value in doing so. Um, 
And then when it comes to these high profile political processes, we'll see the rooms dominated by men without women in them. And I think it's quite easy that we can kind of forget the reason why. And it's I'm really glad you've asked the, asked the question, because it's not just about having women in the room. It's not just so that they can represent women or but it's around actually making sure that diverse groups are part of different processes that their needs are listened to within those processes, are shaping those processes. And ultimately, I think when we talk about including women and including diverse groups of women and diverse groups, mm-hmm. what we're talking about is trying to transform the process. Um, so it's not about just getting women at the table, it's taking the table away, it's transforming mm-hmm. it. And that's Setting the table on fire. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I think that's what we need to do. And I think that's what's really important that it we don't just think, oh, we now need to make sure there's, you know, X number of women involved in this. But actually, why are we doing this? And how does this whole process need to shift? Mm. And I do remember seeing as well the data you refer to where it shows that, yeah, where women actually are involved in the peace process, they tend to last, I think it was like an average five or 10 years longer as, as, sorry, not the peace processes, the outcomes of the peace processes, which is promising. And I think that when you dig into it and you ask yourselves why, it's not just because of gender and, and having women involved, but it's because it's a symptom of those processes being more inclusive mm. and recognising wider needs. And that's incredibly important that a peace process isn't going to work if it's forgotten half the people that are <laughs> going to be affected by conflict and that they may be affected in different ways. Just sounds blindingly obvious, but... <laughs> Here we are still not doing this all the time. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you'd think it would be blindingly obvious, but I had a quite an interesting discussion with someone on a project I was working with the other day. And they said, no, no, we don't, we don't need to have women at this dialogue because gender equality has already been achieved in our country and so we can talk for them. And my head just exploded. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, gender equality has been achieved, so therefore we don't need women to talk for themselves. I would just, anyway... The sheer double think was insane to me. (laughs) Yeah, that's shocking. And well, is it shocking? That's the sad thing. But I, (laughs) and I think it's really important, you know, which women are involved as well Mm. is really important. As I said, we're not, it's not here just about inclusion around numbers. It's really around inclusivity and transforming processes. So it's, yeah, it's particularly important we make sure that these spaces are inclusive. And I mentioned the mediators across the Commonwealth Network. And one of the really inspiring things around that network is it was a group of um, women mediators, which was diverse in that they're across, you know, globally, very different contexts and regions working in different spaces. And they were in the network supporting each other, finding ways to learn and help each other up and where needed to as well. So much of the benefit was saying, well, it's not just, you know, for women in track one processes or women in, in these different processes, but what can we learn from each other? And, and making sure that, you know, if people were being invited to speak on, on global platforms, mm-hmm. who was it? how do we make sure this is more representative as well? Fantastic. Okay, well, one of the other things I wanted to discuss with you today was the interrelationship between conflict and climate change. For for a long time now, we've had this idea of water wars or food wars or whatever, which is always envisaged as some years in the future. But I understand that climate change is already causing some conflicts and then maybe some conflicts are exacerbating climate change in some way. And so I'm just wondering about some of these less 
visible social conflicts which might not be on the radar. I mean, I understand you've done some work, you know, I think in Fiji and West Africa on this. So one of the projects I'm working on at Conciliation Resource at the moment is we, you know, the environment's been a factor in many of the places we work. For a number of years, we've worked with different groups on environmental management in different ways. But we are increasingly, we want to increasingly recognise that climate change is changing the environment where we work. And that's adding another factor in. And in some contexts, that's incredibly explicit already. And in others, we know that the environment is changing and it will continue to change and shape conflict dynamics. And it's important we don't ignore that. So we're trying to bring together our learning from different programs, from very different contexts. So very different countries and areas where we have long term work with partners on peace building and helping them and help us as well. Look at the impact of climate change, how we can address that intersection and what that means. So you mentioned our work in Fiji and that's some of our kind of longest going work, which is specifically around this intersection between climate change and peace building. You mentioned the kind of water wars, the natural resources. It, again, and you know, not to sound like a broken record about, about complexity, but again, this is an area where we need to kind of recognise the complexity. We, we will refer to climate change exacerbating conflict drivers. In the areas where we're working, what we're seeing is not climate change directly leading to conflict, but exacerbating drivers that already exist or changing how they interact. Um, and that is therefore really important to understand how to resolve conflict and how to prevent conflict. So when we're looking at this at the moment, we're currently um, identified three broad areas where climate change is changing these different areas. So talking about governance around livelihoods and around traditional norms and cultures. And climate change is putting pressure on these different areas in different ways, in different places. All of that can therefore then exacerbate the conflict drivers in those areas. So it can put pressure on governance systems. You can therefore see increased imbalances in power, particularly look, looking at what that means around gender and age. And if we don't look at that within the work around kind of climate change and conflict, we, we potentially miss a big part of the puzzle and what we're trying to do. And I think it's really important within that we work with different groups, with governments as well, as, as well as with communities, to understand what this impact is, not just now, but in the long term, because this will continue, climate change will continue to have these effects and how to support communities, uh, societies, governments to better resolve this and address this and build this into their work. So I don't know, it, it might help if I give a, an example. Um, I would love some examples. <laughs> I feel like I want to set an exam question, you know, can you give me a concrete example for each of these areas that intersect with climate change? So in one example, so colleagues of mine working in the Karamoja region, um, they're working in the border areas of Uganda for this work. And they've been exploring with partners the links between climate change and cattle raiding as a driver of violent conflict. And one aspect is that climate change is impacting livelihoods. It's putting additional pressure on the ability to meet cultural gendered expectations. Mm -hmm. And that's in part driving more cattle raiding because that becomes a way for men to meet those gendered expectations mm -hmm. of what they should be doing as a man. And without that bit of understanding within that to kind of otherwise think of it very um, simplistically around, you know, resources available, 
again, we miss a big part of the picture to be able to address that and to find ways to resolve those issues. But just to take a step back, though, so the gendered expectation, is that that men will have a lot of cattle or is it specifically about cattle raiding? I mean, what actually is the expectation there? So um, around the expectations around being a provider um, Mm -hmm. and their ability to then provide and then how cattle raiding is seen as part of that as a way to meet that when it's harder for them to provide. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the clarification. No, and, and again, it's it's kind of looking into this and again, seeing how does gender and climate change and conflict um, interact and how can we address this? And maybe another example in Fiji, and this is again, where not to just add another complication onto this, but it's not just climate change exacerbating conflict, but actually the responses to climate change can as well. So responses that may be trying to address impacts of climate change, if they don't think about how those means of addressing climate change are affecting different groups of people, or how they're involving those most affected, again, they risk increasing power imbalances and exacerbating climate drivers. And so in our work in in Fiji, we're working with a partner, Transcend Oceana, to support more inclusive spaces for dialogue. So they're using traditional dialogue methods to make sure that consultations and decision making particularly around issues around community relocation, um, mm-hmm. to make sure that they're more inclusive and therefore to help communities, local governance respond better to climate change, but in a way that recognizes existing conflict drivers, but also how these have been changed by climate change. And one of the worries that they have seen as they've been doing this work is that there's a lot of organizations and initiatives to try and address climate change, and they know they need to consult the community. But if they don't actually know where they're working, really, mm-hmm. they really do have the potential to do harm if they're not conflict sensitive. Mm-hmm. And I think ensuring that kind of conflict sensitivity within climate change adaptation is going to be increasingly important as we go forward. But also recognizing that's not just a tick box that requires quite long term thinking and understanding to actually influence that as well. Mm. I'm really glad you raised that because quite a number of the people that listen to this podcast are sort of in that corporate mediation space, family mediation space, but are all deeply interested in social conflict and how this mediation skill set can be brought to bear there. And what I'm hearing is that there's a need for an appreciation of the local circumstances and also long-term engagement. Is there anything else that you would recommend that people need to have or do in order to undertake this kind of work? Well, I think actually what's really interesting and that the example from Fiji shows is using some of those processes from looking at conflict at a more personal level mm-hmm. can be really helpful to then looking at using that understanding about how to address conflict on a personal level to help understand conflict on a societal level as well mm-hmm. and it's not that there's we need to take what's in the textbook and say this is how you address mediation between communities or between communities and governments or different governments. But actually where different um, there's been different ways of looking at personal conflict from different cultures, mm-hmm. we should bring that into our societal conflict. Like you should learn from that side as well. So I think not throwing away all that knowledge. And I think that's incredibly, incredibly important. But I think as I said it's around with that kind of understanding of who's involved what are the needs the listening Mm -hmm. if people listening to this podcast are looking at an area where they're coming into it as an outsider perhaps and trying to support that mediation how can they make sure in the space they're creating it is inclusive of 
the different groups that will be affected. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really hard to do as an outsider. But I think that's really important that in terms of peace building support, we are we are doing. Mm. Fantastic. I feel like a lot of people will change their careers after this podcast. <laughs> and so just getting back to climate change for a moment, though, how can addressing climate change actually be a positive tool for peace building or conflict reduction? I always like to talk about this when we talk about climate change and conflicts, it's always nice to have a bit of a positive example as well. But climate change is an issue that doesn't respect national or political boundaries. The air quality doesn't stop at a national border. If there's smog, it will travel. It's therefore what we've um, seen, particularly in, at the moment, looking at in some of our work in South Asia, is using it as a way of bringing, bringing people together across boundaries. This is a shared problem. It will require a shared solution. And actually building up the capacities and confidence to discuss climate change across borders we hope can have a positive impact on wider dynamics as well. So in our work in South Asia, we're working with partners to support an environmental platform that is bringing together scientists, business leaders from India and Pakistan at the moment to identify joint solutions for environmental issues across the Punjab regions. And some of that is looking at agriculture and air pollution. And people may say, what's, what's this got to do with peace building? But if we can bring individuals together from both countries to address this we can really then make sure that that is feeding into wider dialogues between the two countries and that can have a positive impact and help support the wider work going on and other dialogues as well so it's seeing it as a yeah as a as a way to bring people together and ultimately then if both countries are also better able to deal with environmental problems it helps provide more space for them to also address and support many of the other challenges they're having to face as well and so kind of positive impacts of coming together to address climate change have an impact much wider than just actually the climate change work itself for sure excellent you know as you were talking I was just reflecting that I feel like every podcast episode all the practitioners are like we need to have dialogue like that's really what we need and it's a really consistent message, and I think a strong one. And based on what you've just said about spillover effects from one dialogue to potentially other areas of conflicts, I mean, I would say as well that we saw this in the Global Pound Conference Series reports from the International Mediation Institute, is that people can be socialised to use these mechanisms and to talk better and to communicate better and therefore deal with their conflicts differently. So we know it's possible and it's great to hear this message coming from all sides. Now we just need everyone to, everyone to take part in the dialogue dialogue, right? And so this year, I mean, you mentioned it a bit already that we have seen some particularly high profile violent conflicts. How does that actually impact peace building organizations such as conciliation resources and the work you do? So what's really important for us is that we support peace building, whether it's in the news or not. And we have to take a long term approach to it. And obviously the kind of high profile conflicts this year have been very devastating. We've seen as well that there are um, conflicts that don't get the media attention or have had media attention and then fall off the radar. And I think it's incredibly important that our approach like conciliation resources, we don't suddenly start working somewhere just because it's in the news. We work where we have long term relationships and long term partnerships and where we can add value and it's important we continue that work whether it's in the news or not but as long as it's needed and that 
peace building isn't just around stopping the conflict, it's around long term building trust, creating connections. And that takes more time and effort. And what's important for an organization like us, and I think other peace building organizations would perhaps say the same, is sometimes the challenge of um, demonstrating the importance of this work in other spaces and continued peace building work as well. And again, I think raising the issues of complexity into these issues. And so if there's one key takeaway that you wanted people to have after today, what would that be? I guess if I'm to, yeah, kind of, you know, key takeaway and recommendation, it's embrace the complexity. We need to, we, we need to understand that things aren't linear. We need to make sure we're in, involving more groups than we normally think to involve. It makes the work harder, but it means we have a better chance of achieving sustainable results and getting to where we want to get to. And I just wondered as well, actually, that for you, you've said embrace the complexity. How does one differentiate between complexity and chaos? How do you actually cope with going into it, a new situation where there's so much going on and so many factors and so many voices and actually start chipping away at it? I think that's a a really good question. I think I think the way to do it is really part of it is very simply trying to map out to map out some of that complexity. Who is involved? Where is some of this chaos coming from? And in that, identify what are the things we can do right now? Mm-hmm. And that's not going to be addressing everything. And that's the challenge. We you know, can create a lovely theory of change that has 15 different points. And as an organisation, we might have resources to do one or two and have to recognize that some of that is being done elsewhere and trying to understand where and how and to make sure everything aligns so I think there's a benefit in mapping out the complexity and identifying where some of those entry points are but to also then not get too caught up in trying to do everything that's really critical as well to kind of identify where where we can have a positive impact to start with there recognize that may need to change and things may need to adapt and try and create points to to think about that, to reflect, to do that. Um, sadly, I don't think there's a you know, magic way of saying, how do we take this chaos and make <laughs> it a really neat path forward? But I think that it's personally trying to be able to continue in amongst that sort of like chaos and find and um, find the next step is always the kind of key point. You, you might not know the next step, two steps down the line, but if you can know what you're doing at that moment and what you're seeking to do next, it's always a bit easier. Fantastic. So both embrace the chaos and then start where you are. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Look, Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. Not just because we have double the amount of Laura power. (laughs) Uh, It's been a wonderful conversation. And for those interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? So um, the website is c-r.org. There is a really great repository of reports on there, um, of shorter blog posts about key learnings that have come out. So if you're interested in particular topics or particular areas, do go on there. We've had a bit more recently around some of our work on climate change that we've talked about, but you can also look in there around our work on gender as well. So yeah, I'd really recommend taking a look on there, hopefully finding some work that interests you. And also on there, there's ways to keep up to date with us and get in touch with us if you have areas that you're interested in finding more about or potentially collaborating in. Super. So c-r.org. Yes. Easy. 
Well, thank you so much again. And for everyone else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.